Well, greetings and welcome to The Dividing Line. My name is James White. We're going to jump right to a uh, special guest uh, who is joining us via the uh, Chinese method of talking to people, unfortunately. we got to find another way to do that. Uh, stop, stop giving the Chinese all our business. But anyway, um, given hey, what's going on in Ohio uh, and uh, a recent, uh, the fact that... Uh, on Twitter, the question that Brian Gunter asked uh, the head of the ERLC has sort of gone viral as well. Uh, I thought I'd see if um, if my fellow pastor, uh, uh, what's, the, what's his name again? Oh yeah, Jeff Durbin. Haven't seen him for a while. No. Uh, if he might be able to join us. And I, I just thought I'd mention, I wanted to start off, uh, Jeff, by, by reminding you that on Sunday, when Luke and I are in charge of the service. Um, mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. Uh, we 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 did the service. We did the Lord's Supper. We did baptisms, and we were done by five fifty p.m. Um, yeah, and I think the week before we did not have baptisms, and we got done what about six thirty something like that. And what was, was it? What would be the only difference um, between those two weeks? Do you think maybe possibly? Oh. Well, first of all, I'll say that I want to remind you what I said to you in our our elder thread is that a there are no prizes, <laughs> um, and b I just I you know mm-hmm. the difference mm-hmm. is I guess I just have just a a, a very high concern for teaching and mm-hmm. teaching well uh-huh. you know right 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 uh-huh. not I... everyone share not everyone shares that concern it's okay <laughs> clearly James <laughs> the man has more to say than you do. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you say so. I, I just wonder how much of what I said everyone remembered. And by the way, I happened to have an entire pewful of uh, of Navy SEALs when I was preaching. I know, so, I know. Yeah, I was definitely jealous of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For sure. I felt I felt very safe, very very safe indeed. Um, I, I I understand that. Yep, yep. Anyway, uh, Jeff is uh, not in town right now. In fact, I will be. Will you be back for Sunday? Uh, probably not. Okay. Yeah, things oh. are things are up and down right now with the twins that I'm adopting. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, I'm not I'm not I I only got a one way ticket and I'm coming back. I can come back at any time, but it's just a matter of making sure things are 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 well here right now. And it's 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 difficult. Right. So since it's since it's really related, um, uh, now is do you still have the Facebook thing up? Uh, can can people still help with what's going on? Yeah, actually, yes. Uh, I'm going to post it again to my Facebook page today as well for the adoption fund. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, without going into uh, ten thousand details, but just very briefly, I mean, a lot of people know about, it, but a lot of a lot of people don't. Um, what? Uh, it's really hard to do this briefly, isn't it? But. Um, Let's see. Let's see if you can do something briefly. Uh... Yeah, right. I'll, I'll, do, I'll try to do it fast. So basically, this is like the last adoption we had with August. Um, totally surprised us. weren't planning for it. weren't looking for it. Uh, just a, a woman came to me and asked me to adopt her child, and uh, really wouldn't take no for an answer, kind of a thing. And um, they, I think uh, five. I I don't even know what. I feel like I don't even know what time is right now. Um, I think it's about five weeks ago. We discovered that it was twins, right? Um, and then one week later, they were born premature, uh, twenty-nine weeks, right. and um, that creates a lot of difficulties that I'm just not allowed to talk about right now. Uh, unfortunately, I'd love to and ask for prayer for, um, but uh, it's basically been me 
and Candy uh, going back and forth across the country, taking turns um, to be here and just drive back and forth between two hospitals because they're actually in two different hospitals. Yeah. Um, so I'm on the other side of the country, uh, literally just every day driving between the two hospitals right now uh, to be with the girls. And uh, yeah, just please pray for it because it's uh, it was a big surprise to us. We weren't expecting it. And um uh yeah it's it's been a, a crazy last five weeks yeah yeah and, and how many grandchildren do you have five uh-huh okay well we're yeah. we're 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 tied up there that's uh that's interesting uh there you go five grand five grandchildren and now with adopting these these girls uh seven children so seven children and five grandchildren which i never ever would have thought uh, no I no been. and uh, and of course uh uh candy um yeah okay uh <laughs> challenges everywhere so uh, be yeah. looking to uh jeff's facebook page if you'd like to help with um, the situation that they are uh dealing with but the reason i just wanted to have you on and i don't want to spend a whole lot of time uh obviously there's something very very important going on in ohio today uh with um the proposition one or whatever they're calling uh this thing um it is uh it's really it seems to me to be a major focused pushback after the overturn of Roe. I, I mean, it's it's like, let's go to the one state that frequently determines who's going to be president and let's, let's put down a stake here and try to stop this as quickly as possible as far as any kind of nationwide um, movement uh, in light of the overturning of Roe. Um, how 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 important is this from your perspective? Well, I think it's just it's indicative of a lot of things. Um, first and foremost, one of the things we were arguing before the overturning of Roe v. Wade was that Roe v. Wade is was not law. And we we're arguing that our Constitution is clear that Congress creates law in our nation. Uh, Roe v. Wade is a court opinion. Court opinions are important. We're thankful for a good, uh, just court um, it's not like it, it's not that it's irrelevant, but it wasn't law. Uh, what what needed to happen is states that had crim criminal penalties for abortion needed to update their own state legislation to be uh, compatible with the opinion of Roe. But essentially, it's a court opinion and court opinions have historically been resisted by the Supreme uh, by states resisting the Supreme Court's court opinions uh, in history. Uh, the Supreme Court's not the supreme being. And so, like, for example, the famous case of Dred Scott um, uh, historically was a big moment where the Supreme Court argued that black people were not persons. They were property and needed to be returned to their owners. That was an opinion of the Supreme Court. And there were northern states that told the Supreme Court to pound sand and we are we will not listen to your court opinion. And that's not law. So we were arguing before the re reversal of Roe versus Wade that the states needed to, as lesser magistrates, resist uh, any higher magistrate or anybody that would pervert justice uh, for the preborn. So our bills, Biff, our bills of equal protection before Rose overturning also added a line that it would it would essentially resist any higher court opinion uh, that would conflict with the state's legislation of equal protection for all humans from fertilization. So what happened was is when Roe went away, it exposed a lot in a lot of different states um, in terms of where there were gaps, um, the different law, different states had different laws regarding abortion. So you had trigger states uh, that laws that had uh, sorry, states that had trigger laws like Louisiana, 
where when Roe was overturned, there was pro-life legislation put in where there'd be a trigger law that would essentially close down abortion mills. Now, I want to just say this is very, very, very important here. Um, it did not end abortion in Louisiana. Abortions are actually rising in Louisiana with no abortion mills. Uh, Roe versus Wade's reversal did not uh, um, ban abortion in any state. It made it difficult in some states to have abortion clinics, um, but uh, abortion pills and DIY abortions um, are still legal and they're actually on the rise. And so when the Supreme Court uh, reversed Roe versus Wade, we're thankful to God that it's reversed and it's it's over with. But what they did was actually, um, in, according to a Christian worldview, sinful. They didn't declare it to be murder. They didn't stand for the life of the preborn. They just basically washed their hands of it and they handed it back to the states and said, you decide if you want to kill them. And so what happens is it goes back to the states, which is where it should have been in the first place, uh, the states standing for the rights of the preborn. And so you have this uh, chaotic situation across the country. We've got some states that had trigger laws that essentially closed down abortion mills, but didn't ban abortion. And you have some states that actually, like New York or California, that have such loose um, uh, abortion laws and just freedom to abort there, it didn't it didn't do much at all. Um, and uh, so it puts us in a, in a unique situation right now where the states have to fight this fight for the sake of the preborn and establishing justice for them. The challenge is is and I, and I, I know that people hear me saying this over and over again, the pro-life industry and the pro-life establishment really has no desire and they don't have a belief system that would want equal protection for all humans from fertilization. They believe that a woman who uh, murders her child willfully and unjustly in the womb is herself a victim and never to be criminalized and never to be punished. And so the real challenge here is that the pro-life establishment cannot, um, it cannot resist and overcome the onslaught of stuff that's coming against them. And Ohio is going to be the indication of that. So Ohio had a ballot measure um, put in. People worked for a ballot measure where in Ohio you have a unique situation where with a ballot measure and a vote on the ballot measure, you can actually change the state of Ohio's constitution. And so what this ballot measure is, is actually just the revelation of what the pro-aborts want, period, and it's essentially unlimited abortion at any stage through pregnancy all the way up to, quote, viability. But it's interesting. Viability is to be determined by the physician. He can just. So in other words, the abortion doctor can just determine whether he thinks the baby is viable at nine months. Uh, and there's even word, language in the ballot measure that says uh, even if there's viability, if the physician determines that for the life or health of the mother, that it's best to abort the child, he can go ahead and do it. So what's health in that case? Is it mental health? Is this going to bother her? Is it going to keep her up at night? You know, that's not good for her. Let's go ahead and kill the baby. So essentially what the ballot measure is, is a full-on display of what they want anyways. And that's to be able to kill children in the womb at any stage. And, um, and that's on the ballot measure. So they're going full-on for their worldview and their commitments with courage. Uh, to the polls close tonight in Ohio at 7.30 p.m. Um, I have friends on the ground right now, Operation Save America and others uh, in, in Ohio right now that are working the ground, have been working with pastors and churches going across the entire state 
to try to get the word out and get people to come out to vote. But uh, Jason Storms, who's on the ground right now in Ohio, said that it looks like it's going to be very, very close. And he unfortunately thinks that there's a good chance that the ballot measure is going to go through and the uh, Constitution will be updated in Ohio. And here's what I meant by the challenge that the pro-life industry's doctrine and worldview presents to something like this. The pro-aborts are just showing you their hand. They're saying, this is what we want. We want to kill babies at will at any stage. And that's what this ballot measure represents. Now, what we have the option to do because of how we argue consistently from a Christian worldview and just consistently, period, in terms of rationality and reason, uh, with all biology screaming that you're human from fertilization, we've been arguing for equal protection for all humans from fertilization, meaning the laws that protect my life outside of the womb are to protect their lives inside the womb. That's It's a simple bill. It's just definitional human life, all uh, worthy to be given equal protection from fertilization. Because we've been arguing that, we can still work with legislative moves in the state of Ohio where we put legislation in that says equal protection for all humans from fertilization. And what would, what would happen is, and this is what I've been told from our constitutional attorney, is that bill would pass and then it would probably be immediately um, uh, uh, sued. We'd, we'd, it would be enjoined with a lawsuit immediately and we'd have to fight in court. But because our position is equal protection, what we'd be arguing is that no, the United States Constitution argues for equal protection for all persons in this nation. It's the Ohio State Constitution that is conflicting with that. So we'd be able to still have that court battle given our position of abolition and equal protection. But here's the interesting re reveal, the big reveal. Because the pro-life establishment argues inconsistently, they argue uh, in opposition to the Christian gospel and the Christian worldview by saying that she's not guilty for killing her child, she doesn't need Jesus, she doesn't need forgiveness for that sin, and she's a victim herself who needs to be protected to have abortions with no punishment. Um, because they argue for partiality and they argue these bills like heartbeat bills, you can kill these kids but not these kids, because that's their position, they really are in a jam because if this ballot measure goes through, then really they have to throw their hands up and say, we don't have any options. We don't argue for equal protection. We argue for partiality. We argue for six-week bans, 10-week bans, 15-week bans. And um, and they really have to say, well, I guess we lose and we can't really restrict abortion in the state of Ohio because they're so inconsistent, they wouldn't even be able to overcome in reality um uh the ballot measure coming against them so if it's if it's if this ballot measure goes through and it becomes part of the state constitution the only way to overcome it is by arguing for the equal protection of all humans from fertilization not just because that's consistent and glorifying to god and honoring to god but that it's actually consistent with the united states constitution which could overthrow uh, Ohio's uh, attempt to subvert the national constitution. And so I know that's a lot to, to throw out right now, but essentially the battle right now is at the state level for lesser magistrates to, to, um, to establish justice for the preborn. We have right now working uh, bills that we've put in with legislators with end abortion now and working with our friends who have gotten bills into other states. We have potentially 18 states next session uh, of bills of equal protection and abolition going in. So it's going to be a lot of work, but that's where the battle is actually at.
Okay, so l- let's tie this together with uh, what happened last year at the uh, at the SBC, where our friend uh, Brian got to ask the only question of the head of the ERLC, Brent Leatherwood. Um, he got to ask him a really straightforward question in regards right. to um, you know the for, and, and the response, of course, w- was so political it was it was astonishing to me it it, it really was. really was it was yeah. it was sad um and i my understanding is this is actually going to be in an upcoming documentary yes yeah so we're we are dropping a documentary expose uh right now the plan is uh black friday the day after thanksgiving we really need people to help us to share this 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 mini documentary that shows you the the core issue and and part of that yes uh, that that interaction between Leatherwood and and Pastor Brian Gunter is in this documentary to expose the fact that the heart of the issue the the literal center of the issue right now in terms of why is abortion still legal um, and how come the pro life establishment can't overcome it it's really in reality it's not an issue it's not really the issue of arguing for uh, running every play or, you know, accepting a bill of partiality for the moment um, and then still pushing further, like Dr. Albert Moeller recently argued that at the end of one of his briefings. And I want to say as much as I love and honor and respect Dr. Moeller, and he's a much sharper man truly than I think I'll ever be in terms of intellect and how he 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 knows the word of God. Um, I highly respect him. I don't think Dr. Moeller and others like him understand the heart of the issue, the real issue. And this is what Brian was talking about with uh, Leatherwood, is that the pro-life establishment does not believe that a woman should ever, under any circumstance, uh, be seen as guilty or punishable by law for willingly taking the life of her child in the womb. Uh, they they reject equal protection. Uh, when we were in Louisiana, we had a bill that passed the hearing and went to the floor for a vote. We had all the votes that we needed to pass that bill. That bill was subverted and ultimately killed by uh, Senator Mike Johnson, who is now the Speaker of the House, which we're also releasing something on that in about a week. Um, the inside information about that. It was killed by Louisiana Right to Life. It was killed by National Right to Life. It was killed by over 70 of the largest pro-life organizations in the nation. On the day of our vote, they put out a letter, and this is what we were asking God for, so it's it's painful to see, but it's, it's also an answer to prayer for us. We needed them to put their name on the line and say out loud what they have been saying uh, behind doors for the longest time, and that is that they do not ever want abortion to be a crime for a mother who murders her child. They do not believe in equal protection. And so, again, the debates over methodology in terms of, well, can we work with, say, a six-week bill or a heartbeat bill or a 15-week bill and just sort of chunk away at this, people have to understand, if you get to the very end of that, like Dr. Moeller said, he said, you know, we just want to keep it, we'll accept the the little win and say we we still want it to be completely done well he's thinking like a christian he's thinking with the bible he's thinking with a christian worldview and what he doesn't seem to understand and many uh, of uh, of uh, many like him uh, don't seem to understand is that the pro-life industry never 
never wants for a woman to be punished for murdering her child in the womb. Uh, they want no penalties. They want her to be able to do it with impunity and immunity. I'm not telling tales out of the schoolyard. This is not conspiracy theory. This is out of their own mouths. This is with their own signatures. This is with them killing our bills that would have abolished it by making sure those legislators had that in their hands the day of the vote. Uh, they they proudly and loudly say they do not want equal protection for all humans in the womb if it would ever mean that a woman would ever be seen as guilty or as not a victim or punishable in any way. So really, in reality, the heart of this entire conflict right now is not so much really the dispute over whether you can have increment, quote unquote, incrementalism um, as a methodology. That discussion is very important. I think that scripture speaks very clearly about that in terms of unequal weights and measures and partiality as a sin before God. I, I think that's an important discussion to have, but it actually distracts us from the main issue. And that's that the pro-life establishment is not working to abolish abortion. Um, like, for example, and I'll just say this as quickly as I can, in Louisiana, they literally worked to make sure that it was clear that as a legislature, they do not want the woman to be punished for taking the life of her child. So trigger law goes into effect. Abortion mills are wiped out in Louisiana and abortions are on the rise. How does that happen? If we've if we've overcome abortion in Louisiana and we've banned it, well, it, it can't be overcome or actually ever banned in Louisiana without equal protection because women are permitted with the um, satisfaction of the pro-life establishment legally to kill their children in their womb willingly um, and without punishment because they're just victims. And so we're in a really important moment because all of this is being exposed now. The great inconsistencies are being exposed now. Now, we already know what the pro boards believe. They're clear, and they're showing you with their ballot measure what they actually really want. They want unlimited abortions at any time, at any stage in the pregnancy, and they're going for it with courage. But the challenge is, is we've had so much compromise and inconsistency in the pro-life movement for decades uh, that it, people are scrambling going, well, what do we actually do? And the answer is equal protection. That is God honoring. It is biblical. It is consistent. And it's the only way you're going to be able to overcome this is actually working from a Christian worldview and working consistently with equal protection. So that's kind of where we're at. So come, uh, come January, um, I know this last January, I actually preached uh, at least three of the weeks, maybe maybe four. I don't remember. It was it was a lot because that's when a lot of these bills are introduced, and that's when you're traveling all over the place uh, testifying and, and working on these things. Um, so I'm just trying to figure out how you're going to learn to bilocate um, yeah. this, this coming January. I don't know how that works. I know. I know. I, and, well, let me, and, I, yeah, and by the way, be- I didn't know until I looked up here. I can see you. Can you see me? Yeah. Okay. I can't see you right now. No. Okay. Good. No. That's probably best. Um, but but the way but the way can the light see, look, is. Can you see? Can you look? Can you see though how white this I is I was about to say you are really working on catching up with me very very quickly, and I have sixteen years on you. So I know I can. 
And I'm looking at so much gray and white here, like, and I can name most of these. <laughs> I <could do> <laughs> yeah, I could name them too. <laughs> I could tell you. I could tell you the incident. I could tell you the person. Uh huh. <laughs> uh huh. Uh-huh. That's yeah. Believe me, we could. Uh, yeah, we can't do that. Um. <laughs> well, hey, can I? I want to just add one more thing, James. It's important because the discussion with leather uh, Leatherwood is 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 key. And anybody can go take a look at this. There's there's plenty available right now on YouTube. Um, Pastor Brian first challenged him um, in uh, in Anaheim, I believe. So I was there for that. He challenged him in Anaheim, and it was interesting because if you guys actually no, hold on, we we have something up. If you look at Apologia Studios, look up Brent Leatherwood and Apologia Studios. You should see the like 20 minute thing we did on it, where we actually played the clip and everything else, and had everyone interact with it. Leatherwood is sort of part of the old guard of the pro-life establishment. He is, he, I know he loves the Lord and, and, and I praise God for him that he believes the gospel, loves the Lord. So I, I don't want to in any way take down his dignity, but he's part of the old guard that uh, operates based upon a doctrinal position and a system they've adopted where they have protected the woman uh, throughout Roe v. Wade by saying she's a victim she is not guilty for killing her child, which means, of course, she's robbed of the hope of the gospel. Uh, there's no call to repentance to her from from them. Um, she's just as as much a victim as the child. Well, he's the old guard that really has adopted that doctrinal position. And it's really important to recognize that, A, that doctrinal position militates against what Scripture says in terms of her guilt and the only way she can receive forgiveness. But it also militates against the whole history of the Christian church. From the Didache on, you can see that the Christian church has always defined abortion as murder. And um, I mean, I'll be honest, there's even uh, some instances where it's like they might have went a little too far with like, I mean, they would even say things like you're not allowed to come back to to, to worship uh, for 10 years. And they uh, keep even an unrepentant woman, sorry, a repentant woman away from the table if she had had an abortion. Um, I mean, the church has seen it. As murder, she's guilty. She needs Christ. Brent Leatherwood's position is not only unbiblical and inconsistent, but it's also um, against the whole history of the Christian church in terms of how the church has defined it, which is interesting to note. And it also demonstrates that the position he holds as the old guard um, is, um, is well, let me put it this way. He could not answer a direct question from Pastor Brian on um do you is it really your position that a mother who willfully takes the life of her child in the womb is never guilty before god and should never be punished right. he, he 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 did something very very and you you use the word political um i'll say because it's a, such a serious situation and again i don't want to take down his dignity uh slimy and what i mean by that it's such an important issue and the ERLC signs on the dotted line to kill our bill in Louisiana and any other bill that we put forward to abolish abortion. He said that it's not his position or the position of the pro-life establishment uh, that they want to put mothers behind bars. And everyone hears that and goes, oh, that, that sounds so. Yeah. Who would want to put a mother behind bars? And everyone even applauded to that. Not everyone, but a lot of people applauded to it. What's interesting is that Brent Leatherwood didn't finish the sentence. The subject under discussion is a mother who murders her child in the womb. Now, if he had finished the sentence, 
everyone, everyone there as a Christian would have gone, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. If he would have said it's not the position of the pro-life movement or his position uh, that they want to put mothers who murder their children behind bars, everybody would have raised an eyebrow and gone, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. That's not consistent. That's not Christian. But that's that's in reality how they protect it. They protect it with emotion and they want to appeal to your emotions about the mother who does this and say, well, she's a victim. We just need to educate her. And what's interesting is is this key issue is that the people who argue that this woman is a victim and she doesn't know what she's doing, I wonder if they've ever spent time outside of an abortion yeah, clinic. Yeah, yeah. Um, because they are bragging about their abortions. They are laughing about their abortions. They talk about abortion porn. They talk about... Um, you know, I've I've killed five of my kids, and I'm not going to ever stop. And and so this whole this whole portrait that the pro life establishment paints of this mother who just doesn't know what she's up to, she doesn't know what's going on, it just it just doesn't work. And Leatherwood couldn't answer the question consistently there, and um, I think he manipulated the audience uh, with his position. But then he was challenged again by Pastor Brian. And when he and when he was challenged again, he didn't even bother answering the question. He just went off and just changed the subject and went different directions because his position cannot sustain um, a, a critical examination of mm -hmm. the position. Because on the one hand, he wants to operate as a Christian standing on the word of God. On the other hand, he's adopted a, do a doctrinal commitment from the establishment that just does not work together with that. So in other words, they'll say every human life should be seen as worthy of love. It should be protected. All of life is sacred. You are human from the moment of fertilization. That's what they say. But then you say, okay, great. So we need to protect all humans equally from fertilization if that's the case. And then they go, well, kind of, except for the mother. We do not want her to ever be punished for her executing the child. And then you, that's where you see the, the, the wheels come off. Um, so again, all of the discussion that happens uh, around, quote unquote, incrementalism, I would just call it bills of partiality, all of the discussion really skirts the main issue. The heartbeat of it is that they do not want equal protection for all humans from fertilization. And this ballot measure in Ohio is going to really reveal that because if it goes through the pro-life establishment has no ability to argue about it with the doctrinal position that they have held for decades. They cannot overcome it. You can overcome it with a consistent Christian position. You can overcome it. All right. Well, uh, Jeff, are you driving or are you parked? I am parked. Okay. All right. I was I was trying to look behind you there to see if anything was moving. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm I'm definitely parked. Um, I I had considered driving and just putting you like down here, but I didn't think that that would look very yeah. good for the. And the sounds the not good. Down. The sounds not good at all. No, no. And th this yeah, way we I'm... we get the we get the new white beard a whole lot better. It's it it's no. um it's oh yeah yeah I'm gonna. <laughs> You know what? It's funny. It's funny because you've you've been obviously alerting me to the whiteness of my beard as much as you possibly can. Um, but I really believe over the last five weeks, it's gotten it has. more white. Yeah, a lot. Um, yeah, I'm afraid. I'm afraid you are exactly right about that. I was wondering if maybe it was just snowing. Uh, you know. Uh, but yeah, no, I guess not. Um, no, this is just. It's just. Um, 
trials, tribulations, and wisdom just pouring out of my chin. Okay, yeah. Uh, I'll try to claim that for mine, too, but uh, I'm not really sure <laughs> oh, Kelly's buying that. I believe that's true. I believe that's true. I'm not I'm not sure Kelly buys that, though, so we'll have, we'll have to <laughs> let that one slide. So, Well, somebody, somebody gave me some, uh, some encouragement. They were like, Pastor Jeff, that's just so much wisdom falls out of your mouth regularly. It's just, it's just, and I was like, I like that. That's probably <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> All right, man, uh, please uh, drive carefully uh, and safely. Um, and uh, I'm sure you'll all be covering all this on Apologia Radio when you get back, uh, the Ohio stuff and all the rest of that stuff. And yeah. and it's only a few weeks until that uh, documentary drops, too. So I'm sure there'll yeah, be a lot so more going I'll, on. I'll let everyone know just to be on the lookout. And we really do need everyone's help. We really need this information to get in front of pastors, because the truth is many pastors across the country, when I talk to them, they didn't know this. Yeah. They didn't know. Oh, they don't think she needs forgiveness. Oh, they don't. They don't ever want to have her criminalized. They don't know it. So we need pastors to get informed about this so they can inform their congregations. That's one of the most important things for us to overcome right now, because we have 18 states prospectively right now with bills of equal protection. And every single one of them is going to fail if we do not get the church to rise up and be consistent about this. And so we need pastors to know and churches to know. So the idea right now. I just talked to the team is not this Friday, but next Friday, we're going to drop the um, expose on what Mike Johnson did to kill our bill in Louisiana. And then the uh, Black Friday, we're going to drop the um, the documentary that explains the fatal flaw. What's the main issue? And that should be the day after Thanksgiving. All right. We will obviously let people know about that as well. Please drive carefully and uh, we will see you when you get back. Thanks for your time. Thanks, brother. All right. God bless. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Well, I appreciate Jeff taking the time to do that. You can tell he's quite passionate about it. And um, I, I have been making comments about, uh, about his beard uh, because it's <laughs> becoming... Wow. Uh, yeah. And again, if you can go to his uh, Facebook page, look him up on Facebook if you'd like to help with the uh, amazing costs of adopting two preemie girls that were just literally dropped on them out of nowhere. Uh, and being out of state, it's tough. It is, and it's a tough state to adopt in too. So um, just keep all those things in mind. And uh, so for everybody who who goes, well, you need to put your money where your mouth is. Well, I can, I can, <laughs> I can, I've told you the whole story about Augustine, his other adopted son um, that was, uh, going to have spinal bifida and uh, the miracle that took place there. And uh, yeah, uh, Jeff puts his money where his mouth is. I've said to a number of people recently, he's he's not only burning the candle at both ends, he's using a blowtorch to do it. I guess we should say flamethrower, uh, since that's the big thing right now in no quarter November. Uh, he's using a flamethrower to do it. So I'm not sure. Uh, I do what I can, um, but uh, I'm only only one person, so uh, definitely praying for um, Jeff and his wife, Candy. So, just a few comments, and then we're going to be completely shifting gears. Um, you know, when you think about Ohio, you think about farms and rolling hills and agriculture, and you, you think about conservatives, except for, of course, the big cities, once you get into... Places like Cincinnati, then everything is bright blue and and leftist and and uh, anti-American and everything else. But what we're seeing 
Um, what we need to understand, what we need to be praying toward, is we are seeing the results of generations of public indoctrination, not education any longer. We don't have an educational system. We have an indoctrinating, uh, indoctrinating system. The NEA and all of its associated unions and, act and organizations has one purpose, and that is to produce a hive mind. And what you do not have any longer in the educational system, and, and since you don't have it in homes either, is moral and ethical formation. You can't, from a secular worldview. The only moral and ethical formation that can be provided is that which is mandated by the state, the God of the system. And so, when you talk to the younger generation today, this is what you hear. You don't, you don't hear any kind of formed morality or ethical system. They think moral and ethics, morality and ethics, is what you feel. Morality and ethics requires you to have a foundation. We use the term worldview today. But a foundation and a set of principles to make application, not only to yourself, but to others. The secular worldview, all you have is yourself, your emotions, your feelings. There isn't any objective truth. There is no foundation that's going to be relevant to other people. There can't be anything that's binding upon anyone else. And no society can survive this. A society that succumbs to this becomes is, is taken over by tyranny. It has to, just simply to continue to function on the most basic level. Liberty, freedom, all those things go out the window once the state gets what it wants, and that is ultimate control and tyranny over its people. And so, we should not be surprised... I will be surprised if this thing doesn't pass. I hope and pray that there is a turnout. I hope and pray that the culture of death is held at bay slightly for a little while. That's all it would be. Um, but if it passes, it's simply a demonstration. Because when you think about it, it, it is... We... I'm so old, I remember Kate Smith singing God Bless America, okay? Most of these people have never heard of Kate Smith, and they've never heard God Bless America. But we honestly have to recognize that we cannot ask God to bless a nation that will do, as a whole, what Ohio is planning to do as a specific state. There is something called blood guiltiness in Scripture. Look it up sometime. There's a, the, the law says a lot about it. And it's about nations. It's not just individuals. Yes, an individual can have blood guiltiness, but when an individual 
in a city or in a community or in a nation brought blood guiltiness upon the people. They had to deal with it. And the blood guiltiness that this nation is already guilty of is astonishing. So we see what's happening and you just you look at these you look at these young people. You saw you see the people that attacked where where were they? Um I forget where it was. I think it was here in the United States. The uh stop oil people, you know, uh, I mean it's the cult. These these people you cannot reason with them. They have been lied to. Um, they think the world's about to end and they're blaming the most efficient, cheap, safe sources of energy that have made it possible to have hospitals and drugs and and increase our length of life and decrease uh, uh, human suffering. They don't care about any of that stuff. They, they, want, they want to get rid of all of it. They want to go back to the Stone Age, basically. You'll notice that the look in their eyes is pretty much the same look you get from most Jehovah's Witnesses coming to your door when you start criticizing the Watchtower Society. It just doesn't compute. They have been completely brainwashed. Their emotions have been used against them. This is, this is becoming the norm, not the exception. And they're the next generation that will be voting. And it doesn't Unless God does something. And normally that involves judgment, national catastrophe, uh, cultural collapse. Um, that's how these things change. That's, that's how these paradigms change. And unless God works a, a miracle that avoids that kind of collapse, that's what's heading our, our direction. And... Faithfulness on our part is being clear in pointing to the light, in being salt, preservative, and light, pointing to the truth. We do that in our families. We do that in our churches, in our communities, in our neighborhoods. If we're given a broader voice, we do it in that context. And that's what we're called to do. And so we pray for Ohio tonight. But I have to say to Ohioans, you have to think through, and this is, you know, Ohio would just be doing what California has done, New York, uh, these basically communist states already. But this is Ohio. So this is coming, this is coming to my state. I could see somebody doing that here. We have a you know, we have utterly compromised leadership here in the state of Arizona. I I don't I live in Maricopa County. I don't I don't believe my vote counts for diddly. I'll be honest with you, I just don't. It's corrupt, it's corrupt from top to bottom. Um, so I get it. But this is coming for us, for all of us. And there is justice if God brings judgment upon these things. And he, he will bring judgment upon these things. He, he, he cannot. The day, the, that great day will expose all of this. It truly, truly will. But I say to Ohioans, 
You need to look to the people who are who are literally seeking to enshrine in your state's constitution again yet another extended middle finger aimed toward heaven. We love death. Come to Ohio. We love death. That's that's what we're talking about here. That's what we're talking about here. So I want to have Jeff on. Uh, Jeff knows this stuff backwards and forwards, and and uh, so thankful for him. Um. Yeah, I'm gonna. I, I was gonna tell you a story. I there's lots of stories I could tell, <laughs> and they're good stories. Um, you know. Uh, but we'll we'll hold off on that for now. All right, I need to shift gears, big time. Uh, we've done forty five minutes. We'll probably do another forty five minutes. We'll probably do an hour and a half today. Um, I don't know what your schedule is, but we're probably going to need to sneak some another one in this week if I'm going to get done what I need to get done. Um, Jared Longshore responded, so I need to do a response there. We need to finish up the uh, Radio Free Geneva. We can do it remotely, you know, uh, if you're at home or something. That's that's fine. Um, it'll it'll all work out. Uh, I'm preaching Sunday as well uh, at, at Apologia. I will be preaching, and I'm not ready yet. Uh, I'll be preaching on Thanksgiving. And you might say, oh, that's cheap. Actually, Thanksgiving is one of the central Christian traits that I'm very thankful the United States has a day of Thanksgiving. It's sad that it was once very clear who was being thanked and for what. Um, but I'm thankful that we have it. Uh, but it is, Thanksgiving is central to contentment. And we live in a society that is designed to make you not content at any point in your life. Um, and so I somehow between now and, and Sunday need to be, it's, it's, an embarrassment of riches as far as material is concerned. It's not difficult to track stuff down, but how do you organize it in a way to make it really communicable uh, to everybody? And, and hopefully that'll be helpful to folks. Um, so yeah, got lots going on this week. So your prayers are uh, appreciated. One of the things I, the thing I want to do the rest of our time, um, I remember when this debate first came out, uh, Muhammad Hijab and David Wood. And I made comments at the time. And I don't know why it popped back up on my radar screen or why it all of a sudden appeared in my um, feed. But I thought, you know, uh, this would be uh, really useful right now. I... Uh, <laughs> Before the before the program started, I uh, on Twitter said that Steve Camp's a jerk. Okay, I said it straight up, and it was because some other guy had responded to what I put on Twitter about what subjects I was going to be covering, and he says, "Hey, have you heard about that thing in Israel? Why don't you talk about that?" And I have briefly, but what I said was, I don't think anybody knows what's going on in Israel. And there's, from the time it started, I'm like, this does not make any sense. 
a lot of the coverage seems staged. Um, Netanyahu was in a lot of trouble and probably would not be prime minister today, head of a wartime cabinet, if this had not happened. Um, there's a lot of questions that I have that have not been answered yet at all. But what we did do is, for example, I preached an entire sermon on reaching out to both Jews and Muslims in such a way as to, that that is our answer, is changed hearts. That's the only way to end this animosity. It's not political, it's not military, it's not technological. It's changed hearts. And so Steve responded to this guy who was saying, why, why aren't you talking about Israel? As if I'm supposed to throw on a MAGA hat and say, let's go bomb ourselves some Arabs. You know, let's do a Archie Bunker thing. That's how, that's how Archie would have put it. Um, and Steve said, yeah, James will... He responded to that guy, well, James will, will never say anything that would put him... Put him in a bad, bad light with all his, his all his Muslim friends, and I'm like, you know, you're such a jerk, Steve. You you could no more teach people how to reach Muslims than a man the moon. You don't have a clue what you're talking about. You really don't. And so to to pop off on stuff like that, it's just like get get back to what you're supposed to be doing. And that, and it, that's not watching Fox News and wearing your MAGA hat. Um, so I had already made the decision. Here we are in this situation. I started, I was doing a ride inside, and I listened to the opening statement. And I thought, you know, the opening statement of Muhammad Ijab. Actually, I listened to both. But I listened to Muhammad Ijab's opening statement, and I'm like... This is the kind of rhetoric that you're going to hear if you try to present the gospel to a Muslim on the street in New York City or wherever else you might be. And, and I can just hear people getting ready to tune out because they're like, well, I'm just not going to run into him here. Well, you're, that, that's not the case. Um, the, the Muslim population in the United States is growing. And honestly, what we need are Christians everywhere praying for the opportunity to be used. And if you don't prepare ahead of time, then you're going to find yourself in a situation going, man, I wish I hadn't tuned out to that episode of The Dividing Line or something along those lines, because we're trying. It may not be the most popular thing in the world to do, but we're trying to help to prepare you. And so I thought, you know, we can accomplish two things. First of all, I can help Christians to be better prepared. You vast majority of Christians, unless you've listened to some of my debates in the past with Muslims, have never heard presentations. Muhammad Hijab is a good speaker. Uh, he's aggressive. A lot of those involved in what's called Dawah, Islamic apologetics in English-speaking countries, tend to be a little bit on the aggressive side. Um, 
you know, if you listen to the first debate I did with Adnan Rashid in London, many moons ago now, uh, you'll find a very uh, aggressive Adnan there. That was before we got to know each other. And the last debates have been significantly less uh, heated. Still sharp, but not heated. Uh, as a result, I don't know Muhammad Hijab. I would like to... Uh, I've actually written to him. Uh, because I gathered from what we're going to listen to that he had come to the United States. You see, you know, when I was traveling to London two or three times a year, which I did for years, then that opened up the possibility. And I, and I know, for example, I was talking to a group in late nineteen, late 2019, early 2020 about something I was supposed to be doing in, in London, and I had mentioned Muhammad Hijab as, as a person I would like to arrange the debate with. Of course, you know what happened then. <laughs> that all came to a screeching halt. Um, but I wrote, said, are you coming to the United States sometime in 2024? Let's, I, I, you know, if it's possible, I'd like to try to find a way to travel there. I don't fly, but, um, if we knew months ahead of time, then I can, I can arrange, uh, to get there, uh, driving there, depending on where it is. I mean, if it's New York city or something, I really wouldn't be interested, but, um, maybe he could travel outside of the, that realm if that's what he was planning on doing but anyway i'd like to have the opportunity to sit down have dinner have lunch uh get to know the man it always helps in debates as far as i'm concerned can't always do it but it would be something that would be something i would i would be desirous of uh, of doing and so uh i will let him know that i'm doing this response so he can listen to it and uh, hopefully it'll be helpful to all of you as well to be prepared to respond to these kinds of things. Now, what I did forget to do, unfortunately, is I forgot to uh, cue this up. Um, so I'm going to do my best to... Uh, actually, it looks like it's right at the beginning. So we'll, uh, we'll, just, we'll just jump into it. No, I do not have my audio set, um, but I do now. But we should have tested that beforehand. So here we go again, folks. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's dive into this. We will start with Brother Muhammad Hijab giving us his twenty-minute opening statement. You know, the Quran tells us that is on your end. Um, that's on your end. Let me uh, l let me uh, switch over here. It's perfectly, it's perfectly fine here. The first thing we What? We are having some audio difficulties, and Rich thought it was the speakers. When we're engaging with Christian nope, people, that's on your to end. Come to common terms. That we worship none but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's something we really need to think about. Okay. So. Let's try something here. 
And you have to tell me whether it'll work. Keep the microphone on. And uh, we will start with Brother Muhammad Hijab giving us his 20 minute opening statement. You know, the Quran tells us, the first thing we're asked to do when we're engaging with Christian people is to come to common terms. Okay, so just for everybody to know, my voice may sound a little bit differently. I've just put the... <laughs> this isn't the best way to do it, but I've just put my microphone down near the speaker of the MacBook Pro, turn the volume up, and we're going to... Rich says it's fully understandable on his side, um, so... We should be good. I may sound a little bit different, but that's all right. So that's how we will, that's how we will do it. We worship none but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's something we really need to think about. We need to think about the common grounds that we have with Christians. There's lots in common. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Messiah. We believe in him. We love the Messiah. We believe Jesus. Okay. First point I want to make. I will try to be somewhat succinct. Uh, because I could expand upon all these things. But I think we really need to honestly say we do not teach people the same things about who Jesus is. And I would challenge Muhammad that the Jesus of the Quran cannot be the object of love because he is a disembodied ahistorical voice speaking from nowhere. As you know, there is only one time where Jesus speaks in the Quran from a physical location. It's from his cradle. That's actually borrowed from an unbiblical source a Gnostic-tinged source. Um, it's not historical. The author of the Quran did not understand that and thought that it was a part of the Revelation, which it wasn't. Um, but that's the only time that Jesus speaks from a physical location, and it's mythological. Other than that, the reference, either when Jesus speaks, it's just, you know, Surah 5. You know, in answer to Allah, but even in, especially in Surah 5, it's clearly based upon the false idea that Christians, the Trinity is Allah, Mary, and Jesus. And so, and, and believe me, I know all the, I, I've read numerous scholarly articles from the Muslim side and from Orientalist sides. On Surah 5, 116. I, I'm just not going into all that right now because we never get anywhere. Uh, I think the obvious and clear um, meaning of Surah 5, 116, I think that's the only place in the Quran where the author gives us an understanding of what he thinks the say not three is. It's the only place you have three. And it would make sense he would understand it that way. But the point is, how can you love a Jesus who has no existence? Love him for what? Love him for making uh, 
making clay birds come alive. Have you ever read the actual story that's stolen from? Again, semi-Gnostic gospel, ahistorical. But have you ever... The, the Jesus of the Gnostic gospels is not an attractive individual. <laughs> I need to stretch the imagination. Um, so, how, when you say we teach people to love Jesus, I, I think you need, I, I'm sure you do understand that that is a very, very, very different thing. That when we talk about love for Christ, uh, Sunday night I gave what's called the benediction at the end of our service. We, I had preached uh, on the I am sayings of Jesus in the Gospel of John, where he identifies himself using the divine name from Isaiah 43.10. And then we had had the Lord's Supper where we celebrate and remember the cost of our redemption, his broken body and shed blood, which the Quran denies. Surah 4, 1 7. Um, then we had had baptism, where a number of people were baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then we had sung the doxology. Praise to the Trinity. And then I had given the benediction from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So, here we are, 2,000 years later, rejoicing together in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, grace is ascribed to the Father. The one who brings grace is the Spirit. It's called the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got the love of God. You've got the love of Jesus Christ. The interchangeability of the apostolic language, once again demonstrating that all the writers of the New Testament are Trinitarians. That's why they write and speak the way they do. They are experiential Trinitarians. So I just think it's important. It's a common statement of those engaged in Dawah that we are the second largest religion that teaches people to love Jesus, but there is a fundamental difference as to what we're talking about when we're talking about loving Jesus. Loving a mere Razul is not the same thing as loving the one who gave himself for you. Loving the one who created you. Loving the one who has eternally existed as the Son of God. Um, there's, there's a different, different meaning of love there. I believe that he was born from the Virgin Mary. There's a whole chapter in the Quran dedicated to her. That's, that's true. Uh, but again, that, that surah contains what I would call adulterated material. Adulterated in the sense of the author is drawing from sources that were not representative of Jesus and his apostles, but of a completely different religious system called Gnosticism. And it's pretty clear to me the author of the Quran did not understand the worldview issues inherent within Gnosticism, or in some ways... Uh, adopted some of those himself, even though they're completely inconsistent with 
Christianity, Judaism, and that raises the whole problem of the chain in Surah 5. Allah gives the Torah to Moses, he gives the Injil to Jesus, and he confirms what's in the hand of the Torah, and then the Quran to Muhammad. But if you break that chain, that issue in, in Surah 5 goes up as well. So it's, uh, it's relevant. Of course, the elephant in the room, or the difference of opinion, is in the fact that we as Muslims do not believe that Jesus was divine. Now, I should have mentioned, I apologize, uh, I should have mentioned that the subject, evidently, of the uh, debate, uh, yes, this is, by the way, I'm looking at the screen right now, it's in Jamaica, New York, so, yeah. Um, and, of course, this was, wow, five years ago now. Um, wow, almost today, <laughs> fairly close, I hadn't noticed that. Oh, it is the seventh today? Okay, all right, well, that's interesting. Um my, how time flies when COVID destroys the world. <laughs> um, the subject, the, the thesis, is a topic that I've done numerous times. And the same thing happens here as happens every time I've done the subject. And that is, it's supposed to be Trinity and Tawheed. It always ends up being only Trinity. In other words, there is precious little positive presentation on the subject of Tawhid. Now, if if you are not uh, someone who has listened to our presentations on Islam, listened to debates that we've done, uh, I need to define my terms. Uh, Tawhid to Islam is what Trinity is to Christianity. That is, Tawhid is the central affirmation and Muhammad will, Muhammad Hijab will identify Tawheed as monotheism. Um, what needs to be emphasized is its Unitarian monotheism. It's not just monotheism as in there are not many gods, but it is monotheism as in uh, Allah, Allah begetteth not, nor is he begotten. Lem yelled while yulid from Surah one twelve. So there is a specific polemical element to the to the assertion of Tawhid, which involves Unitarianism. There is only one person represented in the being of Allah. Unitarianism, because the reality is, and many Muslims will dispute this, but. Uh, many others recognize it. The reality is, we are monotheists. We believe there is only one true God who has eternally existed as God, the creator of all things. And we simply believe that that one being of God is shared by three divine persons. Not one-third of God, but fully shared by three divine persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, and so, it's the difference between Trinitarianism and Unitarianism not between polytheism and monotheism. Now, you may, if you want to make an argument um, that there is something in monotheism that absolutely necessitates Unitarianism, feel free to try. I think you'll struggle a little bit, and I think Muslims struggle a little bit on this, and I won't get into this right now, 
but because of, at least in Sunni Islam, the belief has developed over time that the Quran is co-equal with Allah, yet is uncreated. It's not another deity, um, but you know, this gets into a lot as in, into a lot of issues regarding how you interpret hadith and the development of Islamic theology over time, which most Muslims don't have any knowledge about, just like most Christians have very little knowledge of uh, the development of theology, uh, discussions in the second century about modalism and issues like that. That will come up, and that's one of the reasons I want to cover this, that will come up in Muhammad uh, Hijab's um, assertions uh, in, this, in this debate. Well, that the Holy Spirit is divine. Today's discussion, ladies and gentlemen, is about Tawheed and Trinity. Tawheed is monotheism, to believe and worship in one God. The Quran says, that say he is Allah, one and only, the eternally besought of all, the sovereign. That's the beginning of Surah 112, by the way. The Trinity is defined by the Athanasius Creed in 500 AD, Athanasian Creed, as one divine person, that one divine being divided into three divine persons. Okay, that, that's obviously not what it does say. It does not say divided. Um, I'm not sure, honestly, um, what the fascination with the Athanasian Creed is because the Athanasian Creed does not come out of any particular council or anything like that. It, it develops separately over time. Athanasius may or may not have had anything to do with it. it it's certainly consistent with Athanasius's teaching uh, over the many decades where he was defending Nicene Orthodoxy, but I would think it would be better to use something more standardized, such as uh, the Nicene symbol or something like that. The Trinity is not difficult to define. Um, there is within the one true and eternal God, uh, three divine persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal with one another. Um, you know, it, it's not all that hard. I hope it isn't because the Athanasian Creed is a really long run-on sentence that you can make sound silly. I've seen a lot of people use it that way, and that would, I think, be an inappropriate uh, way of approaching things. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But there are not three gods, but one God. It goes. So, being and person are two separate things. And that is forced upon us by the testimony of Scripture. Scripture teaches us that there is one God, Yahweh, the maker and creator of all things. And I've never really understood, I'll be honest with you, just in passing, why my Muslim friends do not think more about that divine name. I think it's because clearly the author of the Quran didn't know it. Um, by the time of Muhammad, the Jewish tradition had become very firmly established not to utilize the divine name. You had Adonai, Hashem, things like that. But maybe he just had never heard a Jewish person using it. Maybe that's why there's really no reference to it. But I would highly recommend to my Muslim friends that they 
take some time to look at Yahweh, um, Jehovah, as it's found in a lot of English versions, a lot of English writings, I guess I should say, not necessarily versions. Um, and look at the use of, of that name and how it's applied. And, and I think you might find some very interesting things. That's, um, I only know of, of one Muslim that I've debated who actually took the time to read my book on the Trinity. And that made for a very good debate on the Trinity. And if I were to ever debate Muhammad Hijab, one of the things that I would encourage him to do um, is the rich cam just, just became the slanted rich cam. <laughs> Sorry. It, it, it fell off the window. It didn't completely fall off the window, thankfully. Um, but um, yeah, it sort of startled both of us when I did that. Anyway, uh, I would encourage him to read my book, The Forgotten Trinity, and especially the chapter on the identification of Jesus as Yahweh. I'm going to be doing a debate with a Unitarian in uh, March of next year, Lord willing, uh, defending that assertion that Jesus is identified as Yahweh. Um, not to the exclusion of the Father and the Spirit, but together with the Father and the Spirit. One being shared by three persons. And this is not something where someone came up with this and now we're searching for philosophical terms to use. It is what Scripture reveals to us. And so the, the function of philosophical terminology is to explain philosophical questions. If we simply limit ourselves to scriptural evidence, then it's pretty easy to, to give answers. But when people go outside of that and want to know what about this, what about that, that's why you end up using uh, language that goes beyond scriptural language. Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, and the Holy Spirit is almighty. But there are not three almighties. There's one almighty. This is what the Athanasian Creed says. Now, to be honest with you, I've heard David Wood speak before, and I've noticed that there are three common fallacies that he falls into quite often. One of them is a fallacy called the Tukokui fallacy, which is an appeal to hypocrisy. Another one is a straw man, and a third one is the red herring. These three fallacies are employed by him quite often, and he talks about Islam extensively, as you guys may know, in a negative way. Salam Initiative has put up a database of all of the major misconceptions against Islam being answered, and this can be seen in the link below. Okay. I, you know, I have a vague recollection of having commented at least this far in the debate in the past. So I apologize. Again, it's been years, and we haven't done a lot, so it, it just it's still useful to do, but this is something I, I would object to. Um, th this is debating for people who aren't in the room. There isn't a link for them to click. Um, I, I just think it's not appropriate um, to do this kind of thing. And I have been consistent when Christian debaters have done the same thing in debating Muslims. When, when uh, Jay Smith debated Shabir Ali, 
I chided Jay for doing something similar. So I, I have been consistent at this point. Uh, I just don't think it's appropriate. I, I don't think in a formal debate, if this was being judged by debate rules in a university setting, and those debates are normally a joke, but um, that would not even be allowed at all. Uh, but I, I do think there needs to be some... I, I'm very strong on emphasizing the fact that you're there to debate for the audience that comes. Yeah, it's being recorded, but I, I think it's not respectful uh, to utilize something like that. I also want to give credit to um, one team member who has made a website called Many Profits One Message, which can also be seen in the link below. You can see more information about that. Now to cut straight into it, the question now is this. The question is, when we look at the Old Testament, do we find this idea of the Nicene Trinity? Because the Nicene Trinity is very specific. After the Constantinople Creed in 381, the idea that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three co-equal, co-eternal, independent beings. Remember those words. Okay, again, that's, that's not what it says. It would, it's not independent. Uh, and it's not beings, okay? We're talking about uh, persons who can be distinguished from one another by their their actions, their roles in salvation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's not independent beings uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And so th th these are important terminological errors in the description that is being made. I don't have any problem with going to 381. I mean, that really is the version of the Nicene Creed that is generally known by people today. Um, but to ask, can this be found in the Old Testament, I think misses a point. Now, I know that there are Christians who actually assert uh, that the Old Testament Jews were Trinitarians. I am not one of those people. I do not believe they're Trinitarians, but the Hebrew scriptures do plainly contain texts that in light of New Testament fulfillment are Trinitarian in nature. So there are references clearly to the fact that the one who to the, the child that will be born, the son that will be given, is called El Gabor. He's called um, the Prince of Peace, Mighty God. Uh, he's called Aviad, Everlasting Father. It doesn't make him the Father. It means he's the Father of Eternity. The Creator of all things. It's fulfilled in Colossians 1. So there are uh, important, you know, in Zechariah 12, and places like this, you have important revelation that I would have to, again, assert the writer of the Quran did not know anything about, did not have access to. Um, there are important texts like that that are either cited in the New Testament or in light of New Testament teaching, we can look back and see these things. But I have often used this illustration. Um, and again, they're 
a minority of folks who disagree with me, I think the large majority of Christian scholarship would agree with me on, on this issue. Um, where is the Trinity uh, revealed? Well, it's, uh, it's right there. Right there. See the, the gutter right there? This is Malachi. This is Matthew. So this is where the Trinity is revealed. And what I mean by that is it's revealed in history. That gutter represents 400 years, but it also represents the incarnation, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his ascension to heaven, his enthronement in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and the Father and the Son sending the Holy Spirit. And then you get the first words of Matthew. So all of that happens... Right there. And so the revelation of the Trinity is a historical thing. The, the chief evidence of the doctrine of the Trinity is found in the incarnation, life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And that is why the New Testament writers can utilize Trinitarian language without stopping and going, oh, let me explain this new thing to you. Because it's not a new thing to them. That's why that benediction that I gave, you can find a number of them, and they will uh, use Father, Son, and Spirit together in such a way that if the Son and the Spirit are creatures, it would be completely blasphemous. But it's not because the author knows his audience understands what he's saying, too, because they've experienced the reality of the doctrine of the Trinity. So it's, it's asking for something that we're really not even claiming. Um, God has revealed himself over time. It is called progressive revelation. And I don't know that you can really argue from the... Muslim perspective on this, because I would say that an honest person reading the Quran would have to recognize that the Quran assumes its audience has access to this. The, the Quran assumes that at least what the author thought was in this, and the author was wrong about a lot of things, but the Quran assumes a background and hence does not repeat these things over and over again. Uh, I have in the past, I may have to do it again in light of what's happening right now. But uh, back in, I, I, was, I was writing whatever Christian needs to know about the Quran. And one of the illustrations I used of the differences in stories in the Quran. The Quran will tell the same story multiple times. And one of the stories it tells multiple times is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Muslims will look at the Synoptic Gospels and say, look, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't agree word for word, and so this is a contradiction. This is, this is evolution. I mean, this is Shabir Ali's big thing, right? Always has been. And so I pointed out that when the Quran uh, tells the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It does it in multiple different ways. 
using different languages, different uh, terms, different order of events, uh, different emphasis. In other words, it's just like the Synoptic Gospels telling the same story. If you're going to say, well, it's okay for the Quran to do that because it's, it's all the same story. You can just harmonize them together. I go, fine. So no more picking on the Synoptic Gospels, right? Because <laughs> you just agreed that that's okay to do. Um, but the Muslim can't actually go there because when I'm talking about the Synoptic Gospels, I'm saying that, for example, um, in in one of the most in, in the one that I've addressed many times. In fact, I did it at the G3 conference years and years and years ago when Jesus heals um, the child of the uh, centurion. Um, uh, or the young ruler. Anyway, heals, the, and the woman's healed in the way, you know, that, that story. That's not the point. The issue is that Mark gives much more detail than Matthew does. Matthew telescopes stuff together. And this happens a lot. So there is authorial intent involved. But how do you do that with the Quran if there is not so much as a fingerprint of man in the Quran? It is all, the idea is that on Laylat al-Qadr, the, the, the night of power during the month of Ramadan, the Quran is revealed uh, to the angel Jibreel, who then, over time, reveals it to Muhammad. Um, how can you have authorial intent if it's been written on the heavenly tablet for eternity? You don't, you can't have that. So I'm really not sure how uh, Muhammad Ijab would deal with that, but I, I, that's, I think it's an important aspect to keep in mind. Co-equal, co-eternal, independent P persons. Of the one being of God. Okay, so he corrected himself there. But there was some confusion earlier. Um, and we can understand that. This is the Nicene understanding of the Trinity. Now having said that, guys, when you look at the Old Testament, do we see this? Because when we look at the Old Testament, we find the Shema. Chapter 6, verse 4. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Okay, so you're, you're using the Jewish, but unfortunately, Shema uh, Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. You end up missing something really important. And that is, if you look at the Greek translation of the Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4, you will see that Paul utilizes that language in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, as a creed for Christians, but it includes Jesus. In fact, that term kurios is used for Yahweh. And that's applied to Jesus. Uh, if you want an explanation of that, see my debate with Shabir Ali in South Africa, where we talked about the earliest... I think, did the earliest Christians believe in the deity of Christ or something like I think that may have been the topic. I remember what the room looked like. <laughs> um, but I, I put up on the screen uh, the Greek text of Deuteronomy 
And then First Corinthians 8, and I point out the parallels and the fact that Paul is clearly pulling from that language to define the Christian understanding of who God is. Hero Israel, my Lord, our Lord is one Lord. Here, when you look at the first commandment, chapter 20, verse 3 of Exodus, you find... Now, let me just mention this, and I'm pretty much out of time. Um, I'm sorry I've only gotten three minutes and 50 seconds in. Um, the It doesn't look like he's using notes, so maybe it's just memorized, and that's why it's not quite as accurate. Um, but here, Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one, Echad. Those, the term, using, using Elohim, Yahweh, Echad, these are all terms that end up in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. But Elohim is used to the Father, and Yahweh is used to the Son. And those are the standard Trinitarian terms. In other words, in the New Testament, generally, the Father is called God. Generally, the Son is called Lord. But that's reflecting Yahweh, his covenant name. Uh, there are places where that's switched, so it's Yahweh that places our sins upon the Messiah. That's reference to the Father. And then the numerous places where the Son is identified as Yahweh. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, or Philippians chapter 2, or John 12, 41, whatever it might be. And so, um, there's a reason why we have to be accurate about these things, because it is central to what forced the Christian church to codify what it did. It's not that these things, and this is this is going to come up later. Uh, Muhammad Ijab is going to say nobody for the first three hundred years of of Christian history believed these things. Well, we'll we'll point people out to you that did. Uh, I teach church history; that's my thing. Um, but it's it's missing. It's assuming something that should not be assumed. Nicaea did not invent something. Nicaea was responding to a denial of something that I can show you all the way back in the earliest sources. I can show it to you in the New Testament, but in the, new, the earliest sources outside the New Testament, uh, especially in Ignatius, for example, but elsewhere. And so that's why these things are important, and that's why, unfortunately, very often in debate, the speed of the discussion is going so fast that you can't go back over these things. And that's why I, I like being able to do it a little bit more slowly. So hopefully next time we will have uh, the demons exercised from the uh, sound system on the other side of the uh, glass there. And I don't think, I'll be honest with you, I don't think it's your speakers. I... I So control alt delete solves all things. No, no. In, in this circumstance, remember I and when we were testing, you sound fine now. I had the problem over here. Yeah. All right. I powered the computer down. I can power everything down. Power it back up. Problem's gone. We didn't do it over there. Windows. All windows over there. I may point out that that is a, a Mac there. Yeah, but, but, a, but 
You've black got magic the, device. But the problems over there. Yeah, no, that's, problems. It's, problems. It's, no, it's, no, no, this, no, this no. is all before the computer gets involved and all this stuff. Yeah, no. I'll explain this more on Twitter later. He can't. He can't do anything about that. So. <laughs> anyway, all right. <coughs> uh, sorry about that. Thanks for listening to the program. That we we the broad range of topics, but what I'm going to try to do as best I can. If I if I can't do this, please forgive me. We will be doing at least one more program. I want to try to do two. Well, I'll continue with that. I need to respond to uh, Jared Longshore. Um, because honestly, I don't, I'm not sure that Jared's going to sleep much until I do. He seems a little bit nervous about, oh, wait till after Thanksgiving. <laughs> do it, do it, do it once I get on the road. I'm sorry, Jared. Uh, Rich is, Rich is trying to make me a mean person and you know that I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm just a, a teddy bear anyway. Uh, but we need to respond to Jared Longshore. I want to continue this, and we need to continue the Radio Free Geneva. And I've got some new Radio Free Geneva stuff to add to it once we get through the section on John 6. There's been some stuff that's popped up. Uh, yes, sir, you have... Oh, you pulled your... You pulled the... Um... Oh, Rich is now going to try to do something. He's going to try to mess things up here. And so I'm not going to cooperate. So... Um... So I'm just going to say, um, bye. That's the end of the show. See, do you hear that? You, you hear that That nice, clean music coming from this side, from the windows through the, the devices here? We don't have these problems over here. They're over, over, over there. Thank you.